0: programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Kane College of the Arts 50th Anniversary Gala of the Chase Fine Arts Center featuring actress and singer Kelly O'Hara the Department of Music and the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra Wednesday October 18th at 7:30 p.m. details at usu.edu/yearofthearts
1: Welcome to Access Utah I'm Tom Williams Opera comes in all shapes and sizes. Considered an elitist art form by many, it is capable of touching souls from pioneers and farmers to apostles and politicians. While well, maybe an acquired taste were lured to it via recitals, concerts, oratorios, even Broadway musicals and anecdotal tales. There's no written history of opera in Utah. While references are random, they're consistently found when sought. And uh, that is the uh, subject matter of Walter Rudolph's Arrington Lecture, which is happening this evening at 7 o'clock in the Logan LDS Tabernacle. It's free and open to the public. The title is Opera and Its Voices in Utah, and we'll hear, along with the lecture, performances uh, by Stanford Olson, who's a wonderful uh, tenor. Walter Rudolph is an opera and passion musicologist. His career was in public broadcasting. He developed the classical music format at Classical 89, KBOA-UFM, where he served as general manager. He's produced numerous radio documentaries on opera and as singers and lectured on opera across America and in Sweden. And he's a past, present, current board member of the UC Bjerling Society USA. We welcome in uh, Walter Rudolph. Thanks for joining us. What a privilege to be here. Uh, so, um, before we have massive tune-out, uh, Walter, so this is a general-purpose radio show. You and I are opera buffs, and we'll try not to go down the rabbit hole. Um, but um, what's your, I guess, what's your message to people who say, yeah, this isn't the latest art form, and it's, uh, you know, it's long hair stuff, and, and I don't really want any part of it? Opera has become uh, much more popular than when I was
2: a young man. Uh, and I attribute that, I think, to uh, supertitles. Hmm. Uh, when it used to appear on television, you didn't know what it was. Now that you, you understand every word, uh, I don't ever want to hear it in a translation. I want to hear the original language, and I can, I can sneak to those words. Some people don't like that either. But I think it's made a huge difference. And uh, I'm surprised on a daily basis— the things that I read about opera. Uh, I had two terrific ones yesterday. Uh, I mean, that that was really while I was coming up here. Uh, One is a a quote from a new book, Hear Me Out, by Armando Janucci, And he defines opera with this statement, Opera is the coming together of music, theater, design, people, and coughing. <laughs> Coughing in the greatest synthesis of art, capable of collapsing at the beep of a watch alarm. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. Then he finishes. It is man's highest creation.
3: Hmm.
2: Yeah. Do you believe that? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It, it is, really is a culmination of the arts. Yeah. And it is. It has such power uh, to convey feelings. You can go to the theater, and you can hear spoken drama of great immensity. I mean, there's nothing like Shakespeare. But then you hear Shakespeare put to music. And the music has a way of tugging some additional strings that can make things so profound and so beautiful, so memorable, so may that never happen to me. Mm. Yeah. And that's, I, I love opera for that very reason. Mm-hmm. How did you get into opera? Was it early in your life? <laughs> you know, I think I must have come with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was early in my life. Uh, I can remember spinning seven-inch, 78 records as a kid. And the the themes of, uh, when I row my little toy boat, <laughs> you know, the, the bark roll from uh, Tales of Hoffman, of Offenbach. Uh and in junior high school, I remember giving a, a lecture to a, a ladies' cub club in Cody, Wyoming, on a fellow named Mephistophele, <laughs> <laughs> uh, having no idea what I was talking about at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and I, and I did eventually learn it was Mephistophele, but <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's always been a fascination for me. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, let's, uh, why don't we uh, jump in and hear some music here early in the program. Um, and, you know, if you, if you say, well, I don't know any opera, well, you, you do, even if it's Bugs Bunny and Kill the Wabbit, right? Yeah. You know? Uh, it,
2: we're going to hear a, a recording of uh, UC Bjerling doing Nessun Dorma. And I think everybody knows Nessun Dorma. In our lifetime, Luciano Pavarotti made it famous. But it was Bjerling who really made Nessun Dorma famous to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made the first complete stereo record. Well, I don't know that that's true. It may have been Delmonico Monaco about the same time, but it's certainly the one that's been remembered with Birgit Nielsen. But I have a, a, this, this recording is from his 1958 Carnegie Hall recital. And as president of the Bierling, Reci- uh, Bierling Society, I was in touch with a gal named uh, Phyllis Josel, in her young life, she and her fiancé went to Carnegie Hall and heard this very performance. And in the performance, Bierling often gave encores uh, in, the middle of the, in the middle of the concert. Mm-hmm. And in this, I think you'll hear right at the beginning, you'll hear a voice say, Nessun <laughs> Dorma! Phyllis didn't hear this recording In fact, the 58 recital wasn't issued until the early 90s. It was lost. And when she listened to it on a day that she was snowed in and couldn't go to work, and she got this out, and her husband, who had been her fiancé, was now long dead, she put it on, and she heard that call out, Nessun Dorma, requesting that for an encore. It was her husband. Mm. Who had made the request, and she heard his voice
1: on the recording. I think we'll hear it here. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, it is. It is faint. We'll hear it. Uh, uh, maybe set up the for those who are not familiar with Turandot. What's uh, what's the story in brief that we're hearing in this in this aria? You know, there are several operas that that uh, the tenor is an unknown.
2: Lohengrin is another one, and uh, Turandot is a, an icy pr- princess in China, and she yeah. is not going to be married. And uh, the tenor has to answer three riddles. Many heads have lopped not answering those three riddles. But this one, the unknown prince, does know the answers. And she is very upset when he answers the the third one and realizes that uh, time's up. Uh, He tells her that if she can discover his name by morning that he will let her out of the deal. And she tortures the princess slave, Liu, who commits suicide rather than give it up, and she discovers that his name is Amore, mm. love. So this is Kalif and we do learn his name is Kalif.
1: Okay. Singing. Nessun Dorma. Nessun Dorma. None shall sleep. None shall sleep. Uh, so this is from Carnegie Hall, 1958. We'll hear using Bierling. I think Frederick Schaubecker is on the, uh, the piano. And if you listen carefully, you'll hear uh, the, the, the request from the from the audience. Uh, here's U.C. Bierling singing Nessun Dorma. UC Burling Carnegie Hall Nessun Dorma of uh, Puccini. I think we missed the the shout out for the Nessun Dorm. That That's at the end of the previous track. But
2: uh, ah, if you hear yeah. the
1: hear the recording, you you hear uh, <laughs> you hear someone shouting out. You told the story about uh, about who that was. Um, so I want to get into the uh, connection to Utah and connection to Arrington. But uh, first of all, um, you're a, a board member, past president of UC Burling Society uh, USA. We've heard Burling here. What's what's so special about Burling? Yussi Bjerling, um, he, was voted, he, was, he was
2: considered the great lyric tenor of his time. And uh, I think the easiest way to to suggest his status is to remember that at the turn of the century, he'd been dead since 19, 1960, died at the age of 49. But in the turn of the century, there was a survey done uh, in England by a group of music critics and they did it through instrumentalists, they did conductors, they did singers. And they selected the top 100 singers by a vote. And the number one singer of the 20th century by that group was voted UC Bjerling. callas mm. was second. Um, and and it, it varies. More recent surveys, I see Bjerling tending to fade a little bit. He's usually there, but people don't know him as well. Mm. He's been gone a long time. Um, But it was a a sensationally beautiful voice, Uh, great artistry. Uh, People said he sang with a tear in his voice. Mm. If you listen to him, he sings to your heart. Mm -hmm. He doesn't sing to your intellect, but the intellect is there because he's such a fine musician, and so I think the, the, the purpose of the Use of Yearling Society is to sustain the name mm. out there. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's been exciting is I think since I've been on the board uh, since 11, uh, we have had four, five, six. In November, we're releasing our sixth CD of new material that's not been out there before Uh, They're all from live performances in most instances. But we are managing to find this material. Some of it's been out, but it has never been listenable because of the quality. And they've been cleaned up. Mm. A real pleasure to represent somebody of such status.
1: Yeah. So you've been over to Sweden. You've lectured in in Sweden. I was asked to speak at his 100th birthday
2: event Mm. in Stockholm. And I, I spoke about his American career. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh what uh, brings up an opportunity to talk a little bit about I don't I'm not sure um how widely you've you've viewed uh, opera in in Europe but is are, are the differences more popular in Europe than than the US? Uh yeah, I have to say yes. Uh but they grew
2: up with it. Hmm. Uh those pieces were performed well they were premiered there. It was part of their culture. And uh, you read about uh, the people in England. England isn't thought of as being an operatic country. I mean, name English operas. There are not so many. England's great tradition was drama, Shakespeare. Uh, Yet, Covent Garden and the English National Opera and many regional opera companies uh, are of international renown. Certainly, Covent Garden... Is uh, on a level of the Met and Vienna State Opera and Berlin State Opera and all of those. Um, it's just remarkable that they they had that. I miss that. I wish I wish we had more of it. But every country has their own thing. Mm-hmm.
1: Later in the program, we're going to hear some music from an American opera. There are there are some American operas. There are some, some, some very fine ones. ones yes, uh, let's take a break now. When we come back, we'll uh, have more with Walter Rudolph. He's an opera and passion musicologist. He Says he's was in public broadcasting. He developed a musical classical music format at Classical 99 KBYU FM, where he was general manager. And he's uh, produced numerous radio documentaries on opera and at singers. Lectured on opera across America and in Sweden. He's the past, present, current board member of the UC Burling Society USA. Uh, He is in Logan to give a lecture this evening at the Logan LDS Tabernacle. It's in the Arrington Lecture Series, 7 p.m. this evening. The title is Opera and Its Voices in Utah. In the next segment, we'll uh, get the the connection to uh, Leonard Arrington. These are usually... uh, Mormon history, uh, some, some relation to our Leonard Arrington, and people might be scratching their heads and saying, uh, uh, what about opera? Uh, so this is also part of the Year of the Arts uh, at uh, USU, so that's uh, one uh, connection uh, to this. Um, we'll hear more from Walter Rudolph following this break.
0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, featuring community concerts in Logan's Tabernacle Monday to Friday, and celebrating 50 years at the Kane Lyric Theater and 25 years at Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. More information available online at explorelogan.com.
3: Out in deep space. There's a mysterious object orbiting a distant star. So we're talking something that's really, really, really big. Much, much bigger than a planet. Like Jupiter-sized. Much bigger than Jupiter. And getting to the bottom of this mystery will require citizen scientists. That story next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us this Sunday
0: afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio.
4: On the next Gouda World Music Hour... We'll celebrate Oktoberfest, not with polkas and accordions, although we do have some accordions, but with some of the hip, sophisticated music being created by German musicians, producers, and club DJs today. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join me for Oktoberfest on the next Punamaya World Music
0: Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
1: Thanks for listening to AXIS Utah. This uh, program, this episode is uh, part of Year of the Arts at uh, Utah State University. Uh, This is the Year of the Arts, and that extends into next year. And uh, so the annual Arrington Lecture Series, uh, usually on uh, Mormon history, a connection to Leonard Arrington this year, because it's Year of the Arts, Uh, They invited Walter Rudolph to uh, speak to opera and its voices in Utah. So you'll hear him tonight, uh, 7 p.m., Logan LDS Tabernacle. That's free and open to the public, and you'll hear performances of uh, arias by uh, tenor Stanford Olson as well. It's free and open to the public, and all area college students are invited to participate in a writing competition in conjunction with the lecture. There are cash awards for that. You can go to archives.usu.edu. And this is sponsored by Utah State University Libraries, the Leonard J. Arrington Lecture and Archives Foundation and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, also the Kane College uh, of the Arts. We have with us uh, Walter Rudolph, uh, who will be giving the, uh, the lecture this evening. So maybe at the beginning of this uh, segment, uh, Walter, we could uh, talk about connection to Arrington. There, there is a connection? There
2: is a connection. It came out of the war, I think that when he was in Europe during the war, he discovered opera, and I'll tell just a little bit about that tonight. I won't reveal it now. Um, But Arrington had a fond love, so fond, that he was known to sing himself at some of the parties he had while he was church historian. Um, I have I have seen a video of him singing. And I, I think I would not do an injustice to him by saying that it it wasn't particularly pleasant. <laughs> but you know what? It was so. It was so defined, you could read the love of of music, in what he was doing, that it, you just could not deny it. Mm. You could not look at it and and see anything other than say. My gosh, this man loves music mm. so much, mm. uh, and I was I was just stopped in my tracks by it.
1: Mm. Remarkable. That, that'd be a good segue to get into some of the some of the history. We we know that uh, the Mormon pioneers emphasized Brigham Young emphasized arts. He did. Uh, when when uh, when the you know the uh, LDS uh, people left the United States, they were then sucked back in the U.S. and two years later, but they. Uh, they were, they were trying to establish this uh, Great Basin Kingdom, as Leonard Arrington uh, called it, and arts was a part of this.
2: You know, uh, the Salt Lake Theater, most people don't know it even existed today. I certainly didn't know. I knew, I knew it was there, but I didn't know where. So it was uh, First South and uh, State Street on the northwest corner. And it was a massive building. It was the only theater between Chicago and San Francisco. And it was the first one. And it was a substantial building. When it was torn down in the end of the 20s, uh, it took them a long time to get it down because it had been so well built. Uh, It seated 1,500 people. It was patterned after Drury Lane Theater in London. And uh, if you figure fifteen hundred people at the time, Salt Lake only had twelve thousand. That's that's a, a, a big building. It was the biggest building in the in the city mm. for many
1: years. Indication of what uh, I guess what what value that the arts were placed in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I guess uh, how soon did uh, did opera companies start coming through Utah, or were there was their opera natively produced? Well, I think there. If, if you figure that uh, about a quarter of the population was
2: English, uh, opera wasn't what the English did. They did oratorio, uh, they did choral music, and they did a lot of music, but they didn't do so much opera. Uh, the first opera was in 1869. Well, what else was happening in 1869? There's a correlation between the presence of the railroad, Mm -hmm. which brought opera companies to Salt Lake. But it wasn't long after that that they started producing their own. And so you had both. Uh, By and large, the professional opera that really showed people was traveling. But there were some great singers. We don't have recordings of them, but we know that we had critics in Salt Lake City who knew. You can tell by reading their material that they knew what they were talking about. Mm. And there were voices uh, that—I'll mention them tonight, but there were some fine voices. And they're voices who would have competed very nicely internationally, some of them compared with the top singers of the time.
1: Yeah. Nowadays, we do have uh, native Utahns who are oh. who are making it uh, making it big. <laughs> that I just find it so exciting.
2: I have to tell you, last night I was looking on my phone and I read a review of a Carmen production in Spokane. The Micaela was Jennifer Welch Babbage, and if you haven't heard Jenny Babbage. You've missed a wonderful voice. But she's been up here at Utah Festival Opera. She has.
1: She's sung several times in Logan.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, let me just read her part of the review. Carmen's moral opposite, Mikaela, was sung by soprano, soprano Jennifer Welch Babbage, who provided one of the evening's surprises. Her aria in Act III, Je de Créame uh, Mépouvant, uh, which ordinarily garners polite applause, nearly brought the house down and won Babbage a raucous ovation at the curtain the reason was simply the perfection of her singing which displayed every virtue of phrasing diction and color one looks for in a vocalist it was an inspiring example of great singing supplying more than can be
1: found in the text alone
3: Mm.
1: wonderful (laughs) isn't it yeah and I was I was telling you before we went on the air I was reading a very nice piece a, a profile of, uh, of Aaron Morley, um,
2: Aaron Morley. who is
1: apparently one of the top coloratura sopranos in, in New York right you now. You know I, I met Ken Noda, who was one
2: of the the coaches at the Met, uh, in April of last year I think, and we we visited then and then he came with Aaron Morley and I saw her do a recital at BYU. Uh, last year, so I mean, it's two years ago in this in last fall, and uh, in the in the review or the article that you're talking about, Ken Noda, who is one of the great accompanists, I was just so fascinated how he connects with a with a singer in a in a recital. Ken said that she's the the best coloratura soprano in the world. Mm. This wow, kohler I mean, Tur. Those who don't know, this
1: is the high, usually high soprano, very high the soprano, high soprano yeah. who does all the florid runs, right? The fireworks. Thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, Stanford Olson is uh, has Utah ties, and uh, he'll he'll be he's he's made a nice career for himself. He's coming tonight, and he's
2: going to sing three arias. Stands from Salt Lake. Uh, you know, this guy's debut at the Met is just storied, uh, and, and I'm going to tell it tonight, but I'm going to tell it now. Mm. He was the cover for Rockwell Blake in *I uh, e Puritani, and Blake had to cancel the last act. So Stan had to step in. He was 26, and he was singing with Joan Sutherland, La Stupenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wouldn't have done Puritani if they hadn't had you know, Joan Sutherland. Mm-hmm. So here's Stanford Olson coming on stage for the first time to sing the fourth act of, of Puritani, which is, it goes up to high sea, but it goes beyond high sea. Mm-hmm. So he's he's really exposed, mm-hmm. and he has a a good performance. Joan Sutherland comes on stage with him at the curtain call, and they get a big ovation. And then she pushes him forward and leaves. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a
1: storied, <laughs> wonderful occasion! <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great debut. That's a great debut. I have to tell this story. I I got the chance to interview Joan Sutherland once. She, oh. had a, she had a book out, and we thought we'd take a flyer, probably won't get an interview. We did. She was at a hotel somewhere back east. Um, I almost hyperventilated. This is, you know, one of the great yeah. great voices of all time. And that, you know, the kind of familiar voice comes on, Australian accent, of course. Uh, for my first question, what do I call you? She says, Dame Joan is fine. So, and then she put me in my ease and it was, she told some great stories. Um, I wonder uh, what, maybe you could tell a, a story or two of your, your, your favorite nights at the opera. Oh, gosh. Favorite singers or sometimes the best stories are when things go horribly wrong or there any <laughs> stories you could, you could tell.
2: You know, I, I used to, when I, I was in radio, I, I would ask uh, every singer I interviewed that question. And uh, there were there were some amazing ones that that came out. Uh, one tenor had gone off stage to get a drink, and there was a sink just off stage, and he turned it on, and as sometimes they do, it just splashed all <laughs> over his costume, <laughs> the front of his pants, of course, mm-hmm. and he had to go back right on stage, and so it looked like he'd yeah, <laughs> but there there are. You know, I, th- I think one of the great stories I t- was told to me by Hans Hotter, a great Wagnerian uh, baritone. And he told me about meeting Fischer Dieskau uh, and singing with him only once in Bayreuth. And the, the uh, rehearsal ended and they went to lunch. And Fischer Dieskau, who was a young man at the time, came to Hotter, who was the old pro, and said, Mr. Hotter, you must tell me what is it I can do to become better. And Hotter said to me, he said, I'd, I'd had a beer or two, or I probably wouldn't have even answered him. But I looked at him and I said, natürlich, natürlich, you must become more natural. Be natural. Be natural. Ah, thank you. Thank you. And he said, we never sang together again, but we'd see each other occasionally at social events. And he would always come up to me and he said, ah, Mr. Hotter, I remember be (laughs) natural now of course they were speaking in german Mm -hmm. but this is how hotter told it in english and that's important to know he said many years later i was in london recording some songs of hugo wolf and i had recorded everything but the last two songs i wasn't sure which key was right would it be in b flat or would it be in b major and i had recorded in both keys and i was going back to listen to them and I stopped in the, on the way back to the, the studio because I saw this photograph. There were photographs of everybody on that wall. But right in the middle of all of them, in his sterner pose, was Fischer D. And I looked at it and I said, oh, I know which key it should be in. It should be in B, <laughs> not B flat. <laughs> well, the thing that – I mean, that's, that's cute in and of itself. Mm. But the story doesn't work unless it's a German – telling the story in English, mm. because there is no B major in German. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's Communication. Communication yeah. can be very uh, uh, full of jeopardy, can't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, let's hear some more music. Uh, we're going to uh, hear next some uh, Maria Callas. Uh, Callas is a figure that's transcended opera. I think uh, most people know at least something about her life, you know, kind of the soap opera aspects of, of the life but she she was one of the one of the all-time great singers what what made her so great you know I think that that if there's a name that
2: is remembered today for somebody who died early uh, it is callous uh, and it was a tragic life in many regards uh, she was uh, temperamental but was she unreasonable I don't know that that's uh, would be at all the case. Uh, the Farewell, she the voice was in shreds. She really couldn't sing, but she needed the money. Uh, it was just a, a sad thing. And yet, you listen to the Callas recordings, especially those in her prime, and you'll never forget them. Mm-hmm. Um, should I tell us? Uh, yeah, yes, uh, yes, go ahead. Adriana LeCruveur of uh, Chilea. Is an unknown opera to most people. Yet, as you hear this melody, it will connect with you immediately. It connects as easily as Puccini, in my mind, and uh, "Io son l'umiliancela" from the very beginning of Adriana Le is just one of su- su- supreme beauty, mm. and with Callas doing it.
1: It either it really puts a stamp on it. You know, a lot of sopranos like to sing Adriana because Adriana is uh, kind of I think resonates with them. Adriana is a famous was a famous actress, mm-hmm. and uh, this uh, this this plot has to do with uh, machinations on stage and a rival for Adriana, love rival, and in the end, Adriana is poisoned yes and and dies but this is i think this comes earlier in the, in the opera she's talking about her art that she she serves art right um so here's maria callas with an aria from adriana lucero That's Yoselu Miliancella from uh, Adriano Le Cuvier of uh, Chilea, and that's the great Maria Callas. We're talking about opera, and in fact, uh, the the title of the Arrington Lecture this year is "Opera and Its Voices in Utah." The uh, the presenter is Walter Rudolph, who is a former general manager at uh, KBOA UFM. And he's produced numerous radio documentaries on opera and at Singers, lecture on opera across America and Sweden. And uh, he'll be there tonight at the Logan LDS Tabernacle to give the Arrington Lecture, 7 p.m., along with tenor Stanford Olson, who will be singing some arias. And. Uh, the lecture is free and open to the public. All area college students are invited to participate in a writing competition in conjunction with the lecture, and cash awards are given for that. You can go to archives.usu.edu for more information. And uh, this uh, lecture is part of the Year of the Arts at USU, and this program, Access Utah Today, is part of Year of the Arts as well. We're doing a monthly episode uh, in conjunction with, with uh, Year of the Arts. We'll have more following the break.
0: is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahumanities.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Year of the Arts, celebrating the power of the arts to elevate the human spirit and affirming the university's commitment to the arts. More information at usu.edu slash yearofthearts. 18th, on American Roots,
2: it's Midnight Special with prison music from Angola, Louisiana, and beyond, old-school work songs and new rap, gospel and blues, plus a bebop band. We'll talk with former prisoner saxophonist Charles Neville and hear music from Johnny Cash to Leadbelly. Belly. I'm Nick Spitzer. Join me for American Roots from PRX. Join us Saturday night at 8 on Utah Public Radio.
1: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, showcasing outdoor access to the National Forest for hiking, fishing, and camping. Information on trails, campsites, and more
4: is available online at explorelogan.com.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This episode is part of the USU Year of the Arts As is this year's Arrington Lecture Series, and uh, Walter Rudolph will be presenting Opera and its Voices in Utah. And that is free and open to the public. All area college students are invited to participate in a writing competition in conjunction with this lecture. There are cash awards for that. You can go to archives.usu.edu for more information. And that's uh, 7 p.m. this evening, Logan LDS Tabernacle. Walter Rudolph uh, is, uh, is former general manager of Classical 89, KBYU-FM. He is past president, current board member of the UC Burling Society, uh, USA. And um, we'll get into, I want to make sure we get this in before we close. So Walter, a big uh, Christmas fan and, uh, and uh, the instigator behind a wonderful series that we've been hearing every year for a few years on uh, UPR, uh, The Christmas Chronicles. You
2: know, my byline is at the at the sound of the shining red nose.
1: <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and why don't we uh, let's take a detour into that right now, shall we? Let's let's hear this is episode three. Just give you a flavor of this. We're, we're going to hear the first oh, couple of minutes of episode three from Christmas Chronicles.
4: Classical 89, KBYUFM, presents The Christmas Chronicles, an exclusive dramatic reading by Tim Slover. This eight-part series captures the magic and mystery of everyone's favorite Yuletide character, revealing a true and complete history of Santa Claus. In episode two, the Black Plague came to Klaus's village. Klaus, using his remarkable woodworking skills, brought joy back to the village children, and in the midst of a blinding snowstorm, encountered a mysterious young woman. Episode 3, Anna the Racer, is performed by Richard Johnstone. Klaus stared open-mouthed at the apparition before him. He had been despondent over not being able to deliver his toys to the children of the West and East villages and the farmhouse on the Roman road, all due to the fierce blizzard that had suddenly blown up on this Christmas Eve. He had sought shelter under a huge pine tree when this sleigh had flashed up, spraying snow everywhere, and this yellow-haired young woman had leapt out to peer at him by lantern light. Now Klaus peered back. He couldn't help but notice that she was excessively pretty. ''You're just the man I need to see,'' she had said. ''How did you?'' Klaus began. ''Let's talk on the sleigh,'' she interrupted haven't you something to deliver toys he said toys said the young woman and looked surprised well toys are not what i expected but then i didn't
1: <laughs> like to hear the whole thing but you you can hear there that's uh, you know great production values wonderful actor there richard johnstone um very well written, written piece and i believe this was created for radio right uh, tim silver later would adapt it for the book but it was created for radio we we commissioned it
2: and it was maybe, maybe the great joy of my, my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so satisfying. You know, uh, Mussorgsky wrote the opera Kovanchina about old believers. And uh, Christmas Chronicles is about true believers. Mm-hmm. And I'm an old
1: believer true believer. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. Uh, so would, uh, how did this come about? This was an idea you, you wanted to do a radio series uh, on a Christmas theme?
2: Tim, Tim and I go back a long ways, and we we had
1: many conversations.
2: Uh, the first time this came up, we, we couldn't get approval for it. Uh, but I think it was good that we didn't because it refined itself. And over a period of a few years, we came back to it and floated the idea again, and it went, it sailed through, and we had, a, it was a great success. Mm. Uh, it's the kind of thing that I I hope that people will continue to listen to, and particularly radio programmers, because I think they've got a winner on their on their hands that is perennial.
1: Yeah, yeah, we think so. We've been playing it for. For a while, yeah. so it's, uh, I've got some good feedback from from uh, listeners, and this uh, th- this piece answers some key questions a lot of children have. You know, how can how can Santa go around the whole world in one night? Um, you know, chronolapsy is is the answer Tim Slover came up with, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so cleverly, <laughs> so cleverly, and it's built out of
2: of stories that he told his boys as they were growing up. Uh, but but true stories. You know, it answers a lot of questions for parents as well
1: yeah yeah <laughs> well uh, back to opera we' are talking about opera and, and its voices in Utah that's the errington uh, lecture that's happening this evening in the Logan LDS tabernacle 7 p.m free and open to the public part of the year of the arts at uh, USU um, you were telling me at the break uh, and I want to talk about this uh, Walter Rudolph you uh, you knew Giorgio Totsi you' oh George friend, friends with Giorgio Totsi Giorgio Gry- great bass was baritone. My
2: childhood idol yeah And uh, I had occasion to see him in Tristan and Isolde in San Francisco with Birgit Nielsen, and that's when I first met him. Uh, And interestingly enough, uh, at my request, the chair of the music department, Hal Goodman, brought him on a recital a year later, and we became fast friends after that. Hmm. And I met him many, many times. And ultimately, he even taught at BYU for, I don't remember what period of time, but he would fly in on Thursday night, uh, often as not, I'd pick him up, and he'd teach that night and through the day, and then he'd fly back to California the next day. He hmm. uh, was a, a, just a gentleman. I remember he, he, a month before he died, he left me a voicemail, and I responded to it after the weekend. We talked for a couple of hours. And I've kept the, the recorded message that was there uh, when I came, I came home. And then he died a month later. Mm. But a, a gentleman of the first order and a, a singer who communicated like Bjerling did yeah. and like Callis did. Mm.
1: Uh, and if people uh, people may not know him, but they, you, prob- you, but you, do, you uh, do, if you've watched the movie of South Pacific... Right. You you hear his voice. Yeah. That 57
2: movie he dubbed the, he dubbed the voice for de Beck,
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, well that's wonderful. That's that's quite the opportunity. Yeah. You know, that'd be akin to me idolizing Placido Domingo and then all, all of a sudden becoming his friend. That'd be yeah, And was, Placido if you're out there I I I'm, I'm open to that. But anyway, <laughs> go ahead.
2: You know, Giorgio got was the first singer to get screen credit for for dubbing his voice. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was in South Pacific. They didn't do that before.
1: Right, right. Um, We wanted to mention some more. We were mentioning some uh, um, opera voices, opera performers who are Utah residents. And uh, you were mentioning Tamara Mumford, who's a USU alumna.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, I I noticed uh, I mean, anybody who goes to the Met in the theaters gets a chance to see her. And she's been in a number of them. Uh, but I noticed at the beginning of when the new season was announced at the Met, uh, Fred Plotkin, who is uh, opera about, man, about town in Manhattan, uh, had commented in his blog with WQXR that he was very disappointed that there wasn't more offered for Tamara Mumford, hmm. uh, which I thought was, boy, there's a man who recognizes a great talent. Uh, and he'd taken the Met on. Yeah. I don't know if you know Fred's name, but uh, he, he's about mm-hmm. and uh, is, is highly recognized. So I was pleased that, uh, although she didn't get more to do this season, that they took the Met to task for not doing so. Mm-hmm. You or, know, and I wanted to yes, mention one other thing. We talked about Salt Lake Theater, <clears throat> and um, there was a lot of opera performed in the Salt Lake Theater, in 1911, it was the 50th, I think the 50th anniversary of uh, of, the, of the theater, and they, they were doing uh, Reginald De Koven's Robin Hood. Everybody knows that opera, don't they? Well, they know a little tune from it called Oh, Promise Me mm. that's been done at so many weddings over the year. And, of course, it's, it's a light opera. But uh, that was the last opera performed by the Salt Lake Opera Company in that uh, anniversary year for uh, the Salt Lake Theater. What is interesting to me is that the opera, Robin Hood, has faded. Nobody knows it today. And yet there's a company in Ohio called the Ohio Light Opera Company who performed it a few years back and recorded it, many of their performances get recorded because they're, they're doing this rare repertoire and it never gets done otherwise. Well, guess who the director of the Ohio Light Opera Company is? It's Julie Wright Costa, who is the head of the vocal department at the University of Utah. Mm. So Utahns are out there with great influence in opera mm. in the world today.
1: And uh, Opera Performances, we're, we're blessed to have a couple of very good companies in, uh, Absolutely. in Utah.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I, uh, you know, what I love about Michael Ballam is he, he's willing to do so much rare repertoire. Uh, you would never expect to encounter Boris Gudinov or uh, Vanessa or maybe even The Crucible, which are some of the, my favorite operas. But Michael has done all of those and more, and the Utah Opera world premieres, you know, Dreamkeepers in '96 and uh, the Grapes of Wrath. I mean, it was a co-commission, uh, and their version was slightly cut from what was done at Minnesota Opera, which was probably good because it was very long in Minnesota, and I think that the the current performing edition is probably closer to, to Utah's. Uh, Utah Opera's celebrating their 40th anniversary this year. Utah Festival Opera and Music Theaters just celebrated their 25th anniversary. Wow. Hmm. Good for us.
1: Yeah. We just have a couple minutes left. What do you think the future of opera in Utah and, and, uh, and in America is? It's, uh, one, one downside is a very expensive, the most expensive art form. Yeah, it
2: is. But, you know, I, I think that opera can be performed much less expensively. Let it stand on its own. The thing that really separates opera from the rest of the theater works is the singing. And when there is good singing, and certainly there's a lot of good singers out there today, they can really reflect what opera has to offer. If we train ourselves a bit as well. I, I think the education of our young people and the basics of music uh, will invite them into the magic of music where they can experience this universal language, and that's a trite thing to say, but if you really think about it, I, I have an internet station uh, radio at home, and it's tuned to stations from Tokyo to Sydney to Moscow to Berlin to Munich to London and around the United States and you hear the same music. That's a universal language Hmm. that really speaks to
1: people. That's a good place to end it. We're out of time. Uh, Walter Rudolph has been with us, uh, former general manager at uh, Class 89 KBYU-FM, and uh, he is uh, giving the Arrington Lecture this evening at 7 at the Logan LDS Tabernacle. It's called Opera and Its Voices in Utah, and uh, there'll be performances by tenor Stanford Oldson. Lecture is free and open to the public. All area college students are invited to participate in a writing competition in conjunction with this lecture. There are cash awards for that. You can go to archives.usu.edu for more information information. And this is a part of the USU Year of the Arts. Walter Rudolph, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.
0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the PKD Foundation. Presenting the Walk for PKD in Salt Lake City on October 7th at Liberty Park, a two-mile walk benefiting polycystic kidney disease. Information on PKD and registration available at 4walkforpkd.org.
1: Thank you.